welcome. And yes, over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about Easter. So today we're going to be talking about the upper room. And then next week, we're going to talk about Jerusalem, the city. And then the following week, we're going to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. And then on Good Friday, obviously, we're going to talk about Calvary. And on Easter Day, the empty tomb. And then we're going to continue two weeks afterwards, first of all, talking about what we've titled The Road. Jesus walked several roads afterwards and had several conversations. We're going to look at that. And then at the end of his life here, before he ascended, he talked about the world and what we, as those who are left here, should do in this world. And so we're going to do that as well. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity to learn about Easter. Please invite your friends throughout this time and certainly on Easter morning at 9 and 11. Today we're going to talk about the upper room, the place where Jesus came together with his disciples on that last day before he was crucified. It was dinner time. It was a time of Passover, so they were having a meal together. Now, I need to dispel a few things. First of all, we've all seen Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, haven't you? And there's a picture of a table, Jesus in the middle, and all the six disciples on this side, six disciples on that side. That is not how it happened. Tables are distinctly, as we know tables, are distinctly a Middle Ages and newer phenomenon. They did not sit at tables with four-legged chairs. They were most likely on the ground, most likely with rugs and, and tapestries, whatever might have been on the ground. There may have been a piece of wood there or some other table that was on the ground, but there was nothing elevated. So they were sitting around in a reclining way, and they were probably in a circle, not in a semicircle for a great photo op by Leonardo, but there they were. And they had dinner. And after the dinner... Jesus instituted what we call in this church communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. Some of your traditions call it something else, where Jesus took some of the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is given to you. Take, eat it, and remember me. Now, this occurred before what was about to happen a day later, for which was what we remember it. And then afterwards, he took the cup and prayed again, and he said, this is representation of my blood, take and drink it. And he sent that cup or multiple cups around and they drank from it. Two things that are very important in what Jesus did, baptism and communion. Neither of them have anything to do with your salvation. What it has to do is we take communion, as we call it here, for the purpose of remembering what Jesus did on the cross. So that is the purpose of that. Baptism, which is what Bill was just talking about, is to remember your salvation. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism is not your relationship to God. Baptism is a remembrance of your relationship to God. And so those who are being baptized in uh, next week, it's a great opportunity to set a benchmark in your life about your spiritual walk. It is not your spiritual walk. It is a part of what occurs after you have got new birth with Christ. So I hope you understand it. So back to the upper room. We're in the upper room. The disciples are there. John chapter 13 through 17 gives us a story of what occurred in the upper room. And I'd like to share that story today, and we'll end up in chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, 
just turn to 17, and I'm going to walk through the story of chapters 13 through 16 first. So they had a meal. They had the beginning of communion. Then Jesus stood up. Now remember, they're not in chairs, so he stood up. He took off his outer robe. It was probably springtime, as we know, so it was cooler in Jerusalem, about 2,500 feet above sea level, so it was a cooler time. He took off his outer robe, and at the entrance of the door was a towel and a bowl. And he took that bowl, and he went around and washed the disciples' feet. Now think about it. The way he washed their feet, they were on the ground, so Jesus had to get down on his hands and knees. It was not like they were sitting at a chair, and excuse my feet over here, where they could just lift their feet off the chair and he could wash their feet. This was a very humbling and, can I say, almost a humiliating experience. And the disciples were very surprised. Why was Jesus the teacher, the master, going on his hands and knees around to 12 people and washing their feet. Peter, one of the great disciples, said, you can't wash my feet. Don't wash my feet. I'm not, and others were saying, don't wash my feet. He says, you got to let me wash your feet. They said, well, then wash my whole body. He said, well, your whole body's not dirty. Just your feet are dirty. Remember, this is semi-arid desert property, and they're in sandals. So he washes their feet and comes around Interestingly, he also washes the feet of Judas. Can you imagine less than 24 hours later, actually much less than 24 hours, probably six hours later, he is going to be betrayed by, uh, by Judas. But he, he washes all 12 feet. He gets back sitting and he begins a discussion. But before he does, he kind of turns to a couple of them and says, one of you is going to betray me. He didn't say Judas's name, but at that point, he said, just go and do what you're going to do. And Judas got up and left. So there was at least 11 of them left and Jesus. And Jesus began to teach them. And the first thing he said is, love one another. I give you a new commandment to love one another. Now, this was not a brand new commandment because Jesus had been talking about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But now he gives it to the disciples and says, disciples, love each other. That means disciple A, you, you, Matthew, you love Peter. Thomas, you love Nathaniel. Thaddeus, you love Andrew. James, you love John, etc. Love one another. Because later we hear that they'll know we are believers, they'll know we are Christians by our what? Love. It's interesting, not by our theology, not by our good works, but by our love. And so he does that. Then he begins to continue the conversation and starts talking about that he's going to leave and that there's going to be some problems that are going to happen. He's beginning to foretell what's about to happen over the next 24 hours. And Peter says, I'm going to go with you. No matter what it is, I'm going to go with you. And then what does Jesus say to Peter? you're going to deny me three times before morning. Now think about it. It's eight o'clock in the evening. They're at a dinner. After dinner, they were going to walk back across the little brook in the little valley. They were staying in Gethsemane where they were camping out. That was where they were camping. They were in the city and they're having dinner and then they were going to walk out go back to the campground, so the disciples thought, go to sleep, wake up in the morning after the crow, rooster cries. So how could he deny him three times? Little did Peter know what was about to happen, did he? 
But then Jesus encourages and he goes, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. You know that story? I gotta tell you something, we get it all wrong. Because some of your Bibles that were translated about 400 years ago, in my Father's house are many mansions. And I go to prepare a mansion for you. That's not what it says. That is a distinctly Western concept. The first century would have no concept of mansions. The only mansion that was out there was Herod's or Pilate's or one or two mansions. It was a poor economy. What he's saying is God has a house and I'm going to prepare rooms in God's house. My friends, when you get to heaven, you're gonna be in God's house. You're not gonna be in your house. I just want you to know because what we have distinctly done is gone, how big is your mansion gonna be? And do good works so you can get a bigger mansion. And of course, we know this side's gonna have bigger mansions than on the other side. <laughs> Those of you at home don't have a clue what we're doing here, but this is where I sit, my team. They're gonna have the biggest mansions. Can I tell you, you're not gonna have the biggest mansions because we're all gonna be in one mansion. We're all gonna be in God's house. And we're gonna get a room in God's house. It's a picture of what's about to happen. But we, we think, wow, you know, in our prosperity concepts and all that, I'm gonna get a bigger mansion if I do better things. That is not true. You are going to get a place. And so he talks about this and then Thomas goes, we don't know the way to get there. And what does Jesus say? He, he, he just comes right back to Thomas. He doesn't say, you idiot. He doesn't say, you fool. I've been telling you this for three years. He goes, no. He goes, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an incredible statement. And then Philip goes, how do we know who the Father is? And Jesus says, when you've known me, you have known the Father. Isn't that incredible? Jesus and the Father are like this. We have this thing that, well, there's the Trinity, God, the Father's up there, Jesus is over here, the Holy Spirit's running around helping people, and the reality is God and the Father are one. The Holy Spirit is one. We're Trinitarians. And then he goes and he says, I'm going to send, after I leave, a paraclete. That's the Greek word, not parakeet, but paraclete. I say that because that too is mistranslated in our Bibles. And it's not mistranslated, it's just that the word that was translated 400 years ago is not the same word that it means today. In your older English Bibles, it said, I'm going to send a comforter, doesn't it? What is a comforter? One who comforts. What is one who comforts? One who puts their arm around you and encourages you and helps you when you're hurting, right? That is not why the Holy Spirit is coming here. That is a misconception of the Holy Spirit. The word comfort in its original English side is this. Calm means with, fort means strength. The Holy Spirit is coming to give you strength. Now your newer English Bible says he is the helper. Now that is true, but many times we think as helper as in comfort as is the Holy Spirit is coming to help me, prop me up along the way. Can I tell you, the Holy Spirit is coming to give you power and strength beyond anything you have. The reason we have the Holy Spirit is not so we can feel good. This is not a feel-good belief system. If you want to feel good, 
Go get a Coke and a chocolate something another and feel good, whatever makes you feel good. But if you want to have the power of God in you, the Holy Spirit is the one. He is not here just, the, our, our belief system is not that we are to feel good. Listen, the biggest persecution was about to occur. Do you realize those 11 people in that room, only one was gonna die a natural death. Everyone else, including Jesus Christ himself, was going to be martyred, was gonna be killed by others and not just die, only John, the apostle, died a natural death. So they didn't need someone just patting them on the back. They needed someone, the Holy Spirit, to give them power. And that's what the Holy Spirit is given to us for to convict, to do a lot of other things, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus to give us power. And then Jesus kind of pauses. He's still speaking. This whole talk is called by theologians the upper room discourse. It's a conversation Jesus was having. He stops and he gives a parable. Remember, Jesus loved to give parables throughout, so he gives a parable. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, it's interesting, we can go very quickly to the vine and branches, but I want to go to that first statement, I am. I am the vine. That is a reference back to Exodus chapter 3 and 4 when Moses was at the burning bush. You remember that? The story of Moses, he's a shepherd, been a shepherd for 40 years, he's out there, and all of a sudden, a bush is burning, but it's not consumed, and that unconsumed bush starts talking to him. Do you remember the story? If you haven't read it in a while, go back there to the early parts of Exodus, and the bush is talking, and all of a sudden, he realizes, Moses realizes it's God, and God is telling him to go back down to Egypt and to get his people and to bring them to the promised land. And at the end of all this, Moses, who was scared, he said, how am I gonna do it? I'll give you a rod, I'll give you your brother, I'll give you all these things. And then Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And the voice out of the unconsumed fire says this, I am who I am. I am different than everyone else. I am who I am. That is the word in Hebrew, Yahweh, which we get in English, Jehovah. When we talk about Jehovah, Jehovah is the I am who is I am. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus says, I am. You see, we are not, he is. He is the one that we follow. So he talks about the vine. He says, you're the branches. And he gives this great illustration that I won't go into. It's in John chapter 15, if you want to read it later. But he talks about the fruit. Branches give fruit. If you're in the vine, you are to give fruit. And he says there's four baskets of fruit, four types of fruit. He says, first of all, there's a basket with no fruit. There's a basket with fruit. There's a basket with more fruit. And there's a basket with much fruit. In other words, nothing, a little, a little more, and a lot. And he's saying we need to be that fourth basket. We need to be doing 
the work of God through the power of the vine. And in doing that, we will have fruit. We'll talk about that a little later this morning. But to have fruit, how do we have fruit? Two ways, he says. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. If you want to have fruit in your life, spiritual fruit, you have to abide in the vine. And who is the vine? Jesus Christ. You have to abide in him. And then he says something that he had just said 20 minutes before. He said, you need to love one another. This whole thing about love is getting tiresome to me. But that's what he's saying. You want to be known as a follower of me, the vine, Jesus Christ, you got to be a person of love. You've got to love your neighbor. You've got to love other people. And he goes on and on, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But he brings love up again. It's an incredible conversation that he has with the people. Now let's turn to John 16 at the very end. I want to just read two verses to you at the end of John 16, and then we're going to get into John 17 and look at the last part of this time in the upper room. Verse 28 and then verse 33. Verse 28 says this of chapter 16 of the Gospel of John. Jesus speaking, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Pretty simple, isn't it? But let's dissect it a little. I came from the Father. Jesus Christ was pre-existent. Jesus Christ's story did not begin in Bethlehem or at the conception in Nazareth. Jesus Christ's story begins before the beginning of time because Jesus Christ existed before the end of time because Jesus Christ is God. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ started his earthly um, ministry when it says here, and have come into the world. That's his incarnation. That's Bethlehem. He came into the world with Bethlehem and has been here and doing ministry for three and a half years. And now I am leaving the world. He's predicting his crucifixion. He wasn't going to die a natural death. He knew the time was up, and literally, he had about 24 hours left to live as we know him and as they knew him. And then he says, I'm going back to the Father. He's going to ascend into heaven. He made a prediction of his origin, his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his ascension. And then he ends this talk at the end of, verse, of chapter 16 with the last verse. Underline this verse if you have it. I have said these things to you. Now remember, he's there with the 11, reclined back. They have eaten. They've had communion. Judas is gone. He scolded Peter a little. Everybody's just there. They're not all understanding this yet. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now, he's been talking about love and about all these other things, about bearing much fruit, and then he talks about peace, shalom, that in me you may have peace, because in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is so important for us to understand. Every generation in the world has needed to know who is in control of the world, And who is the overcomer in the world? And my friends, it is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the overcomer, and he is the one who gives us peace. We can have temporary peace from time to time between nations, between families, between partners in a business, between schools, between people, but ultimate peace only comes through Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 17, verse one, he stops speaking to the 11, and he lifts his eyes up and gives a prayer. And my friends, it's been called the high priestly prayer. It is the most amazing prayer I think that's ever been recorded. And if you've never read chapter 17, the entire chapter is a prayer. It's the prayer of Jesus. He prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and what is amazing, he prays for you and me. I'll show you in just a moment. Can you imagine he's praying for us, back then in that room, hours before he's gonna be arrested, and then tortured, et cetera, the trials, and then the crucifixion, and he's praying for himself, for his disciples, and for us. And he starts out as he prays for himself. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. If you recall, if you know your Bible stories at all, you remember what the first miracle Jesus ever did was? It was turning the water into wine at a wedding. Jesus is at a wedding, and he hasn't started his ministry yet. They run out of wine. Mary, who's probably the cousin of the uh, family there, so they're all there for this big family wedding. They run out of wine, and Mary says, Jesus will solve it. And what does Jesus say to Mary? My hour has not come. My hour has not come. This was at the beginning of his ministry. Now he has said, the hour has come. You see, Jesus was born to die. We must understand that. He was born to preach. He was born to do miracles. He was born to love us. All those great things, absolutely. Give us good things to do. But ultimately, his hour was that he was born to die. Now, let me just step back before I go to the next part of this. When Jesus spoke all through his ministry, if you think of all the times you read the red letter parts of the Bible, and all this is red letter parts of the Bible, that's the part Jesus said, he only talked about four things. We think Jesus talked about hundreds of things. He only talked about four things. He talked about the kingdom of God, how to live in the kingdom of God, the fatherhood of God, and his divinity. In other words, that he was God. That's all he talked about. You can pull everything he ever did. It either talks about the kingdom of God, the ethics or how to live in the kingdom of God, the fatherhood of God, or his own divinity. Anybody who says, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, doesn't read the New Testament. The Gospels, that's all Jesus talked about, was the kingdom of God and that he was the king of the kingdom of God. That's his divinity. So he goes on from the hour has come and he says these words, glorify your son with the glory he had before the world existed. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? Glorify your son. He's asking God to glorify him and prepare him for this experience that is about to happen with the glory he had before the world existed. Jesus lived before the creation of the world. I said that a few moments ago, and this passage says that. And then he says a third thing. He wants to talk about eternal life. 
He says in verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Ultimately, and you've heard me say this many times, there is not a lot of roads to heaven. There's not five roads to heaven. There's not a hundred roads to heaven. There is one road to heaven. Jesus said a few moments ago, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And now he's praying that statement by saying this is eternal life, that they know the true God and Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that Jesus is claiming here. Ultimately, either you believe it or you don't believe it. Because if you don't believe it, then all this is just a cool little story in the middle of the first century. But if you do believe it, it's the crux of the entire history of the world. Everything before it and everything afterwards is a fulcrum of the cross of Jesus Christ. And then the last thing he says is, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That is an amazing statement. That's in verse um, four. I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do or that you gave me to do. Isn't that an incredible prayer? Don't you wish at the end of the day when you get up to the house and God is greeting you and you go, I did the work you asked me to do. Not how much money did you give and how many this did you do and how many that did you do. You gave me a work. The Holy Spirit revealed it to me and I did it. And here's the amazing thing. Can I say this if I can just digress for a moment? We think more is better in this country. So we think more years are better. So we think, boy, if I could only live to be 90, well, there's a lot of 90-year-olds in this room. They're probably saying, if I could only live to 95, I'm just happy if I get you know, one more year in. But here's the thing. We don't know when the end of the day is. We have been promised today. Anything that is tomorrow is tomorrow. And tomorrow, God will give us the strength for tomorrow. But at some point, tomorrow will not come for you and me. And we will meet our Savior, we'll meet our God, and I just want to be able to say, all the work you gave me to do, I'm done. Now you say, well, I wish I'd lived, you know, I wish my father had lived into his 80s. I wish my this had lived, and you're right, that's what we wish. But ultimately, only God knows how long each of us should live, and it's not the same, because If your work is done, God is done, and he's going to take you home. That's why there's no retirement with God. You can retire from your job. You can retire from your occupation. That I don't care. But you can never retire from God because what you're saying is, I'm done with what God has given me to do. And I've had many people say, and I say this with ultimate respect, that up north I did so many things, and I've come down here so I don't have to do anything. And somehow we're missing it, people. You have things to do. As John Maxwell will say, if you're alive, live. (laughs) Live. And when you stop living, then you die. But don't stop living. Don't stop doing what God has called you to do. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do what God is telling you to do. Maybe you can't do it with the same energy. Maybe you can't do it with the same fervor. Maybe you can't do it as much. That doesn't matter. 
The little things are just important as the big things, aren't they? And let me tell you, every single person in this room and on the live stream and those of you who are listening to me weeks from now know this, that if you are alive, God has something for you to do. And if you don't know what that is, a great prayer tonight, and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is to pray, God, what is it you want me to do? If you're married, what is it you want us to do? If you have children still at home, what is it you want all of us to do? And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would say the first thing he wants you to do is follow him. Don't start doing good things until you follow him. Because the doing good things is just good things. Now, he prays for his disciples, part two. In the middle, and he goes this way. He goes, first thing he says is, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me. I have made clear, manifested is a big word, I have made clear your name, God, to the people you have given me. He's speaking to the people in the room, the disciples, those who were distinctly followers of his. There were more than the 12 disciples. There were 70 and probably a couple hundred. There was at least 600 afterwards. So there were hundreds of people that were following him. And he said, I made clear your name. Isn't that amazing? It didn't say, I did some great sermons and I did so many cool miracles. God, thank you for letting me do these cool miracles. Thank you for letting me walk on the water and turn the water into wine and turn a little fish and a little uh, loaf of bread into 10,000 meals. That was really cool, God. Thanks for letting me do that. He didn't say any of that, did he? Why? Because his job was to make clear God's name to the people. If you want to know what your job is to do in this world, it's to make clear God's name to people. There's a song that says, make God famous among people. Well, God doesn't need to be famous among people, but we need to make his name clear. And then the next thing he goes on and says that he has, he capes them in your name. So there's this kind of up and then down part of this. It's very interesting. That's in um, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. In other words, he said, I was responsible for them. Now I'm leaving, and Father, I'm giving the responsibility back to you. Of course, the Holy Spirit is coming, and the Holy Spirit is going to do that work, and the Holy Spirit will keep us connected to God. And then he says these words in verse 16. Sanctify them. Sanctify means to set apart. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. This is important because fairly soon after this, a lot of people are going to start talking about Jesus is this and Jesus is that and Jesus wasn't this and Jesus wasn't that. And he says the truth is important. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. There is freedom in knowing the truth. And we need to be people of the truth. We need to be people of a lot of things, but most importantly, people of the truth. And what does he say to God? Your word is truth. Here's the beautiful thing. The scriptures are the truth. If you don't know what else to do, it's the scriptures you need to go to. As Elizabeth, when she uh, teaches from time to time, will always say, if you don't know how to pray, Go to the scriptures and pray a couple verses out of the scriptures. 
Go to the scriptures because that is where the truth is. And then he closes this part of his prayer in verse 18. And he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He's going to do this in a couple of days after the resurrection, but he is sending his disciples into the world. Now, again, we have a misconception of what the world is. Is the world the four corners of the world, if I can use that little uh, typology, or is it just sending them out of their cluster? You will recall, and we'll go over this a little after the resurrection, is that the disciples stayed connected with each other in a tight little group. They were afraid to go into the world. Why? Because the world wanted to kill them. And what did Jesus do? He actually, they were dispersed. There was a lot of dispersion. We'll talk a little of how that occurred. But God did not want them to stay in a holy huddle. Churches, by their very nature, are holy huddles. And that's okay. But he does not want us to stay totally like this. Because I believe church occurs as much out there as it does in here. We must understand that. This happens to be a building that we call a church. Can I just say it's not a church until the people who are the church enter the building. Even if it had stained glass and a big crosses and big steeples and Gothic arches and all the rest, we go, that's a church. No, that's a building that when the people of God are in it is a church. And when the people of God are not in it, they're out there in the world where God has called us to be to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a story of Easter. It's not a story of bringing people to church. It's a story of getting the church out to the people. And you and I need to get out in the people because as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, the last part is this, and this is an interesting part, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that these are the disciples, the followers, the people of the day, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now think about it. Through whose word? Through the disciples' word. Now disciples shared their word in multiple ways. Obviously they went all over the world and <clears throat> I've shared where the disciples went and dispersed and all the rest and where Paul and Timothy and others went all over the world and created what we know as the early church, but also they were participants by the Holy Spirit of writing the scriptures. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, you read the Gospel of John, you read the epistles, you read the history in the book of Acts by Luke, you realize that these are the people that are now affecting us, and Christ is praying for us. And what does he say? First of all, he says, that they may all be one. There's a unity in this prayer. God wants his people, Jesus wants his people, to be unified. Can I say probably next to praying for the peace of Jerusalem, which has not happened, the unification of believers around the world has not happened. This is a prayer that has not happened. Why? Because we get so upset at each other. I would love to see believers coming together in unity. Because when we are unified 
in love, but you go, wait, but they believe a little of this, and they believe a little of that, and can I just say nowadays, we could have gotten away with that 100 years ago, 50 years ago, but I tell you what, if somebody calls the name of Jesus, I want to be with them because there are so few that are calling the name of Jesus. We need to be with people, and you know what? They may baptize a little different than us, and they may think communion's a little different than us, and they may, oh, heaven help us do things in church that we don't do, but let me tell you, we've got to be unified because there's a world out there that hates us, and the hate before was just like dislike. The hate now is they really do hate us. We are hated by so many people. I just want to find Christ followers in our church and other places around the world where we can be united together. Oh, we can disagree on things. You know, it's funny, uh, just a, a quick aside. When Elizabeth and I go away, we go to different churches, obviously, and I end up going to high churches. You know the difference between a high church and a low church? We're a low church. That means we're pretty relaxed. We're celebratory, we raise our hands, we sing loud, we do things. I stand up here, I don't you know, read the creeds and we don't have hymns that are 500 years old. And, uh, but when we go, many times we go to high churches because I wanna see how others worship. I wanna enjoy that worship. They're very contemplative, they're very quiet, they don't talk to you, nobody speaks to each other. I'm like into community, I want everybody to know each other and everybody be with each other. I'm not saying we're right and they're wrong, but I tell you what, I'm locking arms with those people when we're trying to, and if someone goes to an Anglican church that believes the Bible, someone goes to another church that believes the Bible, I am all for it. Even though it may not be my style or my way I've worshiped, that's what I want because we need people following Jesus Christ, not following the community church versus the denominational church. We need people. Yes, we need strength in our, our um our theologies, absolutely. But we need to realize that there's a lot of us who have separated ourselves when separation isn't necessary. And let's come together. And then he goes on and he says, that they may be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The point of this is, how are people gonna believe in Jesus Christ? We are the visual that the world has of Jesus Christ. If we act like Jesus, they're going to go, I want to be like that. If we don't act like Jesus, they're going to say, you're a hypocrite. You're a, and they say worse than that, don't they? And then at the end of this prayer, he closes it in verse 26. I want you to turn there, and I want to read it out loud, the entire verse. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Jesus' work is not finished. He has made it known to the disciples. He's making it known all the way down 20 centuries later to you and me that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So this love that he said, a new commandment I give to you to love one another, greater love has no man or woman than that they lay down their life for a friend is this, God the Father, Father, you love me, I love you, and I want them to know that, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and that I may be in them. And he closed the prayer, and they stood up, and they walked out, heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and you know what's going to happen there. We'll talk about it on another day here. But that's what this is about. And that's what happened in the upper room. Now, let's just bring our thoughts together here for a moment. If I could share a story about our family that occurred when our kids, we have five kids, they were all much younger. If you're from Florida, you know there's a a journey, a pilgrimage every family in Florida has to do, and it's not to go to Disney World. It's to go to Cape Canaveral. You had to go as we were growing You went to Cape Canaveral and go on that long causeway and get there before daylight, park your car, get everybody on the roof of the car with some breakfast and get ready to watch a launch of a spacecraft. This is what every parent did way back. We don't do it now, but when we were all much younger. And so we took that journey. And we got there early, you know, you have to leave at two in the morning and get everybody up, get them asleep, you get them back in the car, whatever. And we got there, it was a beautiful morning. This, it's, you know, the stars, it was fantastic. And you can turn on the radio and turn it, tune it to, you know, the Houston. And so you're listening to the whole thing, T minus 10 minutes, T minus nine minutes, down to six, to five, to four, to three, to two, and they abort the mission. I'm looking up now, the sun is rising, it's gorgeous, not a cloud, no wind, nothing. I know Florida, I know when there's wind, I know when there's storms, thunderstorms, nothing. It is like pristine gorgeous. And then they announce there's rain in Africa. You know, wherever the, uh, some islands where it's the place where they can land if they have to land, you know, the space shuttle. So we were, we were there in the space shuttle years. And so it was all aborted. So now it's 6.45 in the morning, and what are you supposed to do? So we all run to the Kennedy Space Center. Thousands of people by 7 a.m., and they open it up special for you. I don't know if you've been to the Kennedy Space Center. It is a cool place if you love these kind of things of rockets and everything. But the coolest part of the Kennedy Space Center is not in the building. It's behind the building. And if you've ever gone, you got to go behind the building because they have this thing called the Rocket Garden. And they have all the rockets through history, the Russian rockets and the Americans' rockets and everybody's rockets that formerly were all pretty much lifted from Cape Canaveral and a place in, in Russia. And they have them all there. And they're all there. It's amazing. So you can see them in their real size. They're the real ones. So you can see the real height, not models. And you go, this is unbelievable. So I knew all about this. So I'm taking our kids who are all like, like this, and we're taking them to get from the Kennedy Space Center to the Rocket Garden. You go across a boardwalk, across a swamp. You know, half of that area is swamps. That's why they put it there, so nobody would build around it. And so there's swamps. And as we're walking, there's a little pond. It's breakfast time for the animals. There's a large heron there about to pounce on a fish in the shallows of the pond. And behind this male or female, I don't know birds well enough, is an alligator about to pounce on the bird who's about to pounce on the fish. And we're above it all so they don't see us, right? Because we're elevated and it's down in the swamp and there's all the rockets. And my kids stop. And I go, no, we're not here to see the alligators. We're here to see man's greatest inventions. 
the ones that went to the moon, to Mars, the Jupiter thing, all those things, the Hubble telescope. I couldn't get them to the rocket garden <laughs> because of a little event that occurs hundreds of millions of times a day that God created a world that is so beautiful and intense that the greatest thing that humanity has ever created at that point in time paled in significance to what we were watching. My friends, no matter what we do, and as great as we are, and we can do some great things, and you have done great things, but what Jesus Christ is about to do on the cross at Calvary that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks pales everything else. It is the most important thing in the history of the world. And so many times we get caught up in the things we do, and they're important. And we go, look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. Come on over. I got to show you what I did. I've done some great things. It is nothing compared to the work and the ministry that Jesus Christ did because of God the Father and then the sending of the paraclete the Holy Spirit, to our lives. And my friend, this is the God we worship. We don't worship someone who just made a little bigger rocket than we have made. We don't worship a superhuman. We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray together.